And Romans chapter 15 is where we are, and we stopped last week around verse 12, 13, and we're going to pick up the reading again in verse 14. Um, and so let's do that. We're in our final stretch. The first um, really uh, 12, 11 chapters are more about the how-to, the mechanics of being a Christian, and then chapters 12 through 16 are about um, that, that relationship with one another and our fellowship. So he really talks about that here, and we're going to get right into it. He talks about three big things, but the focus is for us to pray for one another. In verse 14, he writes this to the church. He says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Now, remember, he has just come off from this big, long, um, really commissioning of people. And telling them that God has called you and he has put you in the church. And if you are a Jew or a Gentile, now you are together. It doesn't matter where you come from. And I'm grateful for that. That we have been chosen by God no matter where we come from, our social status, no matter the color of our skin, no matter what language we speak, that Christ has made us all part of his family. Um, perhaps this verse, though, is one of the most significant verses um, in this whole section of the last part of Romans. Uh, this one right here, because Paul recognizes really something tremendous about this group of believers in Rome, and that is that they are full of goodness, he says, that there's something ad admirable about the church. Let me tell you, you guys are admirable. I want to let you know that there's goodness in you. I've seen it on display, and it's awesome. And, and he says you're filled with knowledge, and you're able to instruct one another. This is really important. Some of you may have the word admonish there in your Bible. Some, some translations render it there. But the, the, really the, the good word there is really instruct. And it says, hey, you guys, you're able to give advice to each other. And as Christians, that's a good thing, right? Sometimes we seek counsel, and sometimes uh, we just hear counsel in the family of God, and that's important. This is the power that God gives to his church. And it's a privilege to help each other out that we encourage each other to share our experiences, to share our knowledge with each other, that you and I have experiences in life and in our relationships with God and others. The Williams translation says that they are, to, they are competent to counsel each other. That's a pretty uh, thorough um, explanation. Listen how J.B. Phillips puts it this way in, in verse 14. He says, For I myself feel certain that you, my brothers, have real Christian character and experience and that you are capable of keeping each other on the right road. I like that. That we are capable of keeping each other on the right road. That there is this ability to counsel. The Greek word here is nothedio. And maybe you've heard of that before. To, to put in our mind by implication. It's really to, to, to caution or to reprove gently. To, to instruct. And you have, may have heard of the author. He authored over 100 books. A very popular author's name is Jay Adams. I don't know how many of you have read any of his stuff. He died in 2020. But um, I have some of his works. And he was well known in Presbyterian circles, but he wrote a powerful book called Winning the War Within. You may have heard of that book, Winning the War Within. And, and the book it embraced this verse, and it was called Competent to Counsel. And um, in, in one, it was pulled from this verse that he called, the subtitle was Competent to Counsel. And his ministry is called the Institute for Neuthetic Studies. 
I don't know if you've heard of that, but um, it's, it's where we, he got the name from, and the instruction for his ministry came from that. And his teaching was, and this is, he pulled it right from this verse, his teaching was that every gift to counsel is inside the church. That every gift to counsel is inside the church. If the people are maturing in their knowledge of God and knowledge of the word and growing in their faith and relationship with the, the, the exhortation of the spirit of God, the people are to admonish, to encourage, to instruct, to give advice to one another. When we ask for advice, that we are called to be the hands extended. We are called to be the pastoral care in the church. So you don't have to call the pastor for everything, right? Yeah? And it's okay, I don't mind you calling me, but we can call on one another, right? That's, that's uh, not to be farmed out in most things to secular counseling. That the idea of the Nuthetic Studies Council was that the church had enough maturity amongst the believers to contain this. What a powerful concept, right? Now, if we consider that and we compare ourselves to that, it kind of makes us feel a little wanting in some way. Like, we know we're not qualified, and yet we have relationship with God and one another. And do you know that I think 99% of life is just showing up? 99% of life is showing up. If you show up on time or you're a little early, my dad always said, uh, told me often, I should say, not always, but um, if you're not 10 minutes early, you're 10 minutes late. And you know what it's like. We're always late to church, though. I mean, how many are late to your dentist appointment and you're nerve-wracked because you're going to get canceled? We should feel that way about coming to church. Yeah. <gasps> I'm going to get canceled. No, you're not going to get canceled. But, yeah. <laughs> the doctor's not going to see me. But this concept of neuthetic counseling, or the word here, it's the same thing that Paul gives to the church. And he says, within the church, you guys should be mature enough and well-versed in the scriptures and have a deep spiritual experience with God and close to God so that you can encourage one another in your faith and in issues of life. So his big idea is this. The solutions, the comfort, the guidance to produce meaningful, productive, and content-filled life should be produced within the church family. That all those things are capable inside of maturing believers. That's the key, though, right? Maturing believers understand the word of God and the counsel of God. The Bible has 49 character qualities that are taught to us. Do we know what they are? There's really two defining factors that are really important for this, and I want to label them. Number one, we are supposed to be in a fellowship or a church that teaches the scriptures, the whole counsel of God. Now, we go through the scriptures here at Abundant Life. We go through books of the Bible. This summer, we're going through a topical series but it is still about the scriptures. While I can appreciate some of our world-known world super preachers, the counsel of God is really found in the scriptures, and that's the point of pastoral preaching. The point of pastoral preaching is to take us through the scriptures, and I will have it no other way at Abundant Life Church. That's the way it's going to be. And the way that it's going to be here at Abundant Life Church is that we are going to go through the scriptures because we want the whole counsel of God that comes from the scriptures. And that's the most important thing because the scripture teaches the principles of life. The scripture teaches what we are to be doing and how to live, how to love rather than to be selfish, how to attend, uh, be attentive rather than be distracted, how to be bold rather than to be fearful, how to be 
content rather than to covet, how to be creative rather than to be an underachiever, to, bring depend, to be dependable rather than inconsistent, to be secure rather than be anxious, to have virtue rather than weakness. See how much character there is in the Bible? All of these things reflected and fleshed out through Scripture bring a whole lot of meaning and definition to how we should live. How many want to live for Christ? When we want to live for Christ, we are going to find out what pleases the Lord. When you're married to somebody, you find out what pleases them, and you do things to please them because you love them, you care for them. If we love Christ, all the more we should find out what pleases Him. Scripture teaches us the value of success and having things in order so there's no confusion. Did you know that? The scripture teaches that we are to have that counsel of God that so that in life we would be thorough and not incomplete, that we would be wise and not foolish, so that we would know how to learn to love rather than and to be loyal rather than suffer infidelity. So the Bible contains what we need for life and godliness, uh, as Timothy writes, and, and contentment. In fact, Jesus says in John 17, 17, sanctify them uh, by truth, for your word is the truth. James 1.21, James writes, Therefore, put away foolishness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Now, this is really important because Jesus talks about the significance of our, us having a body, of us having a spirit, and having a soul. This is clearly defined in Scripture. The mind, as well, is part of that. And the, the, the power of this is that when we are saved, Scripture says that our spirit is born again to God. We're saved. Praise God for that. But when did you come to Christ? When you were 18? When you were 25? When you were 35? Maybe you were 60? Do you know your soul has that much more experience with your life than your spirit does? So your spirit, now that God says your spirit is alive, is in competition with what your soul has been feeding itself its whole life. Your soul has, ha has been fed all the things that you want, all the appetites fed through your media and music and culture and things you were raised with. All of those things comprise your soul, who you are. And the Bible says the soul and the spirit, they're in constant battle with one another. And so if your spirit has only been born again for the last 15 years and, and your soul has had 35 years of experience, the, the scripture says God wants to be in charge now. His spirit is in you and his spirit is fighting for control over the wants and desires of your soul. Because the scripture says that every soul that sins will die. Right? How many have sinned today? <laughs> How many sinned yesterday? Okay, now if you're not raising your hand about last week, you're all liars, all right? Okay, all liars go to hell. Um, that's good preaching right there. But your spirit is born again to God, right? So when we're born again, the Bible says we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Our spirit was dead. But he says we've been made alive again through Christ, and our spirit comes alive. So our spirit is saying, listen to me now. But our soul keeps saying to the spirit, listen to me now. And the soul keeps winning that battle. That's the battle that we face, all of us as believers, all the time. Our wants and desires that are bred in our mind, our soul, the, who makes up who we are, must conform to the will of the spirit that is now regenerated and made brand new. And this is the battle we find ourselves in. None of us are perfect, but praise God we're saved. Listen to what uh, Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.15. He writes, 
And from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, you've known the Bible, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. All scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Having the Bible and its principles really come out in our life and, and being in that where we're letting that wash through us and be in us, the stories through its history, the principles about life, the character that's taught in us is able to, the Bible says, save our soul. In other words, from the trappings that we're living out right now in this world, the decisions we're making every day. Without this and understanding this more, we hear about Christianity or we go to church and we get excited, but then we walk away and we have no interest whatsoever because there's, we're not allowing the Holy Spirit to bring alive the Word of God in our life. Does that make sense? It's, just, it's an equation riddled throughout the Bible over and over again. So knowing and having the Word of God, the Bible says, is significant. Being in a Bible-believing church. So secondly, a church, being in a church that connects with people and bears each other's burdens. How many know that's important? This is why um, it's important that all of us connect with each other one-on-one, -on -one, you know, mano a mano. That there's opportunities, that when we see someone, when one of our Bible study groups, or where we go out to lunch, or we're before or after church services, or during, or, or over at one another's houses, all of these are important. One of our greatest resources we have here at Abundant Life is our prayer groups. And they are very important to us. They are the way of abundant life. The way of abundant life is to minister the word of God boldly without compromise and to pray. That's the basic foundation. And that fellowship is found in those prayer groups, and they happen all the time. In those prayer groups, people are sharing life together, and they're praying for the church and revival and all those things. In addition, they have time. We have time to meet with one another and care for one another and bear each other's burdens. And in the work of praying for the church, praying for our city and community and genuine revival, you know what else happens? We have relationship with each other. If you are not in a prayer group at Abundant Life, you're missing out on one of the two great purposes Abundant Life exists, is to pray for each other. Now, that's why we have Pastor Pete, right, to help facilitate that. So you better see him right after church. He's going to be bombarded with people, and he's going to help you get connected. Now, sometimes the issues of life may be too big for, you know, or, or complicated maybe for the expertise of the family of God, and I understand that. None of us are super awesome trained counselors, and but that's like, you know, 2% of the time. The other 98% of the time, we can help to care for and love one another. Well, that's what God has called the church to be. And this is part of the, uh, the issue sometimes we have maybe with in life you see with other ministries or other things. But be careful not to criticize them, but understand, I think on the local level, God always mentions the local church more than he does the church as a whole. More than 70% of the time when the, the church is mentioned in the Bible, it's talking about the local body of believers. Not talking about the worldwide church, okay? The local body of believers is our focus. That's why we have a church here. That's why we have a gathering of people. And those that connect online, Pastor Ebzon from Uganda is watching today. Praise God. Say hello, Pastor Ebzon. Welcome to the church. Um, <laughs> this is why Paul says you are able to help one another unravel one another's issues in life, encourage and counsel one another because 
of your maturity level in the Lord and maybe lack of maturity. But we come into relationship with the body of Christ and we ask one another questions we don't know the answer to, we bear that question together, right? See, how beautiful it is that even if we don't have the solution, we know the one who does. And we can go to one another and, and we remember, we can't get older without growing up. We just can't do that. It's just a sin to do that, believer, you know. We can't get over, I say that a lot, but this is my commandment. Jesus says that you love one another. Why? So that your joy will be complete. <laughs> and well, if you're out of fellowship with the body of believers and you're not in intimacy with some of those guys and you don't, you're not sharing life with, the, with uh, Christian brothers and sisters, it says that you love one another so that your joy will, you want more joy? Ha, get plugged into the family of God. Anyway, he goes on. Verse number 15, Romans 15, 15. But on some points I have written to you very boldly as a way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God. Remember, the Jews and Gentiles culturally bigoted, prejudiced, they hated each other. If you were a Samaritan and you were a Jew, the Jew, if they knew you walked on that piece of ground, would go around it. They wouldn't drink milk from a goat if they knew that a Gentile hand had milked the goat. This is bad stuff, right? There's bad blood going on. So Paul, the church has come together. There's Jews and Gentiles and Samaritans. They're all in the same church, right? And so God's doing something marvelous and great. So that the offering to the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Verse 17, in Christ Jesus, then I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. It's so powerful. And Paul, of course, he's, he's got one of those ministries that's quite dynamic, you know. He's, he's very much an evangelist apostle. He plants churches, and, and he doesn't want to go where there's no church. He wants to go and plant. That's, that's his calling, you know, and the church needs those people. We have missionaries today that we support. They're a part of our um, missions partners that we support financially here as a church. But you know what's also really interesting is he's a Jewish rabbi, right? Or he was Jewish rabbi. So it's interesting that God takes a Jewish rabbi, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. I mean, this is like God bring this this is the ministry of reconciliation, right? So when Paul ministers to the Gentiles, the word here is the same word that we get our word liturgy from. Um, it's, it's an ecclesiastical churchy word, and it means to perform a public act of service. So he's calling it his public act of service to, to bring this priestly ministry for the people um, um, to whom he's been called, to the Gentiles. And that priestly act of service was to offer sacrifices. And even more interesting is that Gentiles weren't allowed in the temple. They weren't allowed to participate in, quote, liturgy. And so when Paul says that the Gentiles were an acceptable offering, he uses this word liturgy and is another word for grace further extended to all the people. And it's just a powerful connection. So 
That's what God always does. And the purpose of the Jewish people was to bring people to God. That's the purpose God had called the Jews in the first place. To bring other nations to know God, the true God, to also make them Jews and inheritance with them. Those who were not Jews were able to become Jews and be adopted into God's family. That was always who they were. The Jewish people were to be God's ambassadors in the world and real missionaries. And, and, and the same word, the same is true for us today, that Christ has called all people to be saved and to know him. Those who were excluded are now included. And Paul leads them to Christ, the Pharisee of Pharisees. <laughs> I mean, can you see the dynamic power of that? Paul leads them to Jesus, and God's just got a sense of humor with this whole thing. I mean, he really does. He makes his case, Paul does, in verse 20, the real purpose for the drive that he has in this life, where he says, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, because I don't want to build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. That's the mission. It never has changed. Has God changed? No. That's the mission he gave the Jews, and it's the same mission that Paul gave to the church then, and it's the same mission that we have now. Paul's mission was to prepare the way. Go out and prepare the way to raise the banner. That was his mission. That's, our, that's what our focus this year is. And Isaiah chapter 62 is the context for this, for, this, um, for this mission that we have here behind me on this banner. God tells his people three big things in Isaiah 62. It's a powerful promise. And Isaiah is written to a people that have been scattered, a people who Jerusalem has been taken over. They have, this, is, this has happened. And Jesus, the next thing to come after about 700 years now is Jesus hasn't come yet. But God tells him this, that, that, that a couple of promises. He says, don't keep who I am a secret. Hold on to my promise. Another thing he tells him is there's going to be an, an end to this foreign domination. Oh, there's some spiritual application here. And thirdly, I will give back to you what the enemy has stolen. He tells him this stuff. And those things that he prescribes for them and he promises to them and, and he tells them what they ought to be doing. Friends, God doesn't save us and expect for us to sit around with our bags packed just waiting for him to return. I can't wait for Jesus to come back, so I'm just so sick and tired of being in church, right? I am, it's not what God has called us to do. He's called us to anticipate his return by being on mission. Paul's example is, is a great one to follow. It introduces a question that if the impact of God's salvation had such a dramatic push on him and gave him such a drive, where is our drive? Is there a fire burning inside of us? Let's revisit this scripture here, Isaiah chapter 62 and verse 10, because he tells him these promises, these three things, hold on to my promise, I'm going to give back what the enemy has stolen, and there's a reason for your captivity, but in verse 10 he says, go through, he tells him how to do it, go through Go through the gates, go out, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, take out the stones, lift up a banner for the people. Indeed, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the world, say to the daughter of Zion, surely your salvation is coming. God's call to his people, his people, Zion, he's saying to them, don't worry, 
salvation is coming. And then he says, his reward is with him and his work before in verse 12. And they shall call them holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called, sought out, a city not forsaken. The power of this scripture is so wonderful and it totally relates to what Paul is talking about and how it fulfills really the mission that we today, Abundant Life Church family, and every Christian is supposed to be on. That God will be the one to dominate. God will be the one to dominate. All others who have had dominated before, all others who have had dominion before, this is what, the, the, this is what happens when God shows up. This is what happens when people give their life to Christ. All the stuff that dominated before, all the stuff that had scourged the soul before and brought bondage and oppression and depression and tormented the soul has to now contend with Christ. The battle for the soul, the battle for the soul, the battle for the life. The prophecy in Isaiah is a messianic one, that Jesus is coming and will do this and, and that our eternal home is more significant than this temporary one. And, and in the scripture, God is speaking about Jerusalem specifically, and Zion represented his dominion. But God will have dominion. This is the idea of Jesus, that Jesus will have dominion. No matter what kingdom has been established in the life before, when someone comes to Christ, Jesus will begin, and he will have dominion. Only one will have dominion. The hope of Christ that brings salvation to every person who calls him Lord, the Spirit of God will invade that space and take dominion over the things in the soul that are there. This is the way that it should happen. This is where deliverance happens. God gives some powerful directives about what we're supposed to be doing because of this mission, but they're only happening if people have experienced the explosion of God's overwhelming presence to expel that which had dominion before and where he really takes up residence in the life. When that happens, that's where freedom tips the scale. That's where you walk out of the church, or you walk out of your closet, or you walk out of your house, and the grass seems a little greener. The sky seems a little bluer. Is because now you've decided, I'm not going to let what has held me down, I'm not going to let those things of the past, all of my failures that I keep letting come back in, have dominion over me any longer. God gives some, some great directives here in verse 10. He says, Go get out there. Because this has happened in you, go out. Get out of these gates. The New Living Translation says, go out. <laughs> get out of here. I like what the message paraphrase says, walk out of the gates and get going. <laughs> it says, get out and do what I've called you to do because you've been set free. The only reason I can imagine that we wouldn't be feeling that way is if we haven't allowed dominion to reign by Christ rather than what we've allowed there. He says, prepare the way for the people. Build up the highway. We're called to road construction. We're called to clear the way so that people that are far from God, the stumbling blocks of our religiosity would be out of the way so they could just see Christ. Uh, you know, all the do's and don'ts that you have in your book, you know, they just look like you're a religious bit zealot of some kind. But when they realize that you've been saved by Christ and he's changed your appetites, desires, and made you free and content, that looks a little different. 
That looks a little different than someone that says, don't do this, don't do that, live according to this standard in this line, and then you'll be saved. No, that's wrong. Unless you have experience with Jesus and ask him to come into your life and really set you free from the bondage and guilt and depression and things that hold you back and hold you down and experience God. This is the place where people can't get past all the pollution. We drink from the toilet of ideas in this world, and we guzzle it down every week. We pour it in through media, and we constantly drink this stuff. Uh, can I say that word? It starts with an S, but I won't say it. Uh, we drink this stuff all the time, right? It's being constantly poured into us. And, and God says, wait a minute, I've got something better. I've got some pure water here. I've got some good stuff. I've got some clean, clean stuff. And when we drink that in, we begin to realize there's a part of God that has such freedom and power that I haven't experienced and nothing else in this world can experience. Rather than seeking the counsel of the world, I'm going to seek the counsel of God. Rather than going to places of the world to find this or that, I'm going to begin to seek the counsel of God. I'm going to begin to change my appetite. I'm going to change my, my desires. And God begins to do that. He begins to shape what you like differently. What, you know, it just changes what you, you want. We go out to the path and we begin to take away all the stuff that blocks people from Jesus because all they might see is just a religious person. Uh, tight and uptight and can't wait to get out of here, right? And God says, I don't, that's not what I had in mind. I had in mind to get away from those legal requirements. That's what he says in, in, in Malachi, right? Uh, he says it so clear. He says it so clear in Zechariah. And he says it in the minor prophets. So the prophets come to, God shows them this mountain, remember? And he, he looks at the mountain and he says, who's going to get around this mountain? Who are you? Oh, Zerubbabel, this, this mountain would stand in the way. That, law, that, that mountain in scripture represents a legal thing that had to be overcome in order for people to meet with God. It was blocking the people from God. It represented the law and the, righteous, the requirements that, were, that people had to perform in order to be accepted by God. I have to be religious. I have to dress right, act right. I can't walk too far on Sunday I gotta do, or Saturday. I can't do all these things, right? I've got to be so perfect in every way. I've got to look right, sound right. I've just got to be the perfect person. And God says that what that, that's what that mountain is. And he looks at the mountain, and I love the figure. If you have an NIV Bible, it says grace, grace there. You have my permission to override Zondervan's authority and cross out grace there. Because God's on one side of the mountain. His people are on the other side of the mountain. And Jesus is going like this, and the people are going, see us, see us. And the law is in the way. All the requirements for them to do. And what happens? God just gets tired of the mountain. He says, I want my people with me. And it's the law. It's all the things. And this is what Jesus did. He looks at the mountain, and God looks at the mountain. He shouts. He shouts these two words. He says this mountain, grace, grace. And the Bible says the mountain becomes blown up. And there's a flat plain, and the people access God. That's what Jesus did. Jesus came, and he, re he erased the righteous requirements for you to be good enough and he says, I don't care what you've done, where you come from. I don't care what brokenness you've experienced or what hurts you have. I love you just like you are. And he shouts at the mountain of things that many Christians have put in your way. Come on now. He shouts at the mountain of many things you've put in your way. And he shouts grace. And through the cross of Christ, he took to bear your burden and my burden, all my sin, all my shame. He says we're called to real construction. We're called to lift up the banner then. 
once we experience God, we begin living for him because we, he transforms us. And the world begins to identify us because our banner's raised. Right? You lift up a standard. That's what the Bible calls it, a standard. You lift a standard, the pole that had the banner on it that represented what army you were under, whose kingdom you were flying under. And we lift up the standard of the kingdom, the, the banner of the Lord. And so we begin to look a little different. Maybe we sound a little different. We, we live more content. It's not so much about the look and sound as it is the contentment and the joy and the fulfillment that God gives in loving him and knowing him rather than different things. And so we begin to live that way and people see it and they go, oh, wow, what is this? And what does Paul call it? He calls it us loving one another. It's a visible thing. It's our job to both do this. And it's not God's job to prepare the way. It's prepared in terms of what he's done. That's our job to make sure that there's no stumbling block for people. But it's also not God's job to raise the standard or the banner. That's our job. We do those things. Romans 15, 22. I ramble. Forgive me. The Bible says, for this reason, when he continues writing, um, for this reason, why well, have so often been hindered from coming to you? But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey uh, there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. We don't know if Paul ever went to Spain, um, but he is saying that he really wants to visit them. He really wants to go and see them. And you'll have the blessing of helping me, he says, on the way through. His expressed desire really is he, he does want to see them. He does want to see the believers at Rome. Remember, Rome's a unique church. Rome was a church established by Jews and Gentiles together. The Jews bring in a lot of their traditions. The Jews were expelled for five years, and so this church grew without any Jewish traditional influence. And then they come back together after the emperor allowed them to come back in. And, um, and there's some problems, you know. So Paul's addressing that. He's saying, guys, you're still together. You're still one in Christ. So he wants to see them because they're such a strong church. And his expressed desire to see them and, encourage, and to be encouraged by them. But it's overwhelming in his message. He says, hey, I really want to see you, but I really also need to tell people about Jesus that have never heard. Uh, it's my desire to see you. Paul was um, arrested, of course, in Caesarea. He was there for two years. He went on to Rome, and then he was in prison and wrote a couple letters, including, as you know, Philippians. Uh, we talked about that before. Uh, was put back in prison in the Marantine prison. And then, of course, he was um, let out in the Appian Way and beheaded. Wonderful. Um, but maybe those two years in between, he could have gone to Spain. We don't know, but... Why is this important? It's really just trivia, but it's important because we learn such drive from this man. He's got such a drive to, to, to preach the gospel where it's never been preached. I mean, he's a true adventurer. I'm always watching these adventure riders on motorcycles, you know, going around the world. You know, Adam got me hooked on another one. But they just take off on these motorcycles, and they're going for, you know, 20,000 kilometers. Just like, oh, just taken off on a whim, just their backpack, you know, I'm like, yeah, I want to, wait a minute, does Pam want to go, you know, I, I don't know, <laughs> that's, a, that's a big question, um, but he's got this adventurous missionary spirit, he, he wants to go, 
um, we find this, his words in 1 Corinthians 9.16. He writes, for necessity is on me. You hear his words, woe to me if I preach not the gospel. He said, the New Living Translation puts it this way. He, he says, I am compelled by God to do this. It's an overwhelming drive. How terrible it would be for me if I couldn't preach the good news. He just has this, like Jeremiah, a, bo- a fire in his bones. He's consumed with spreading the knowledge of Jesus. And you would think maybe after being beaten, shipwrecked, stoned, warrants out for his arrest, imprisoned, uh, maybe he would quit. You know, if you would, right? I mean, how many of you got a speeding ticket before? If you got a speeding ticket, you know what it's like. I mean, for the next week or so after, you're like, well, I hope I'm not going over the speed limit, right? I, you would think, but not only does he not do this, he goes 100 miles an hour past the police station. He's, he is just determined. Let me ask you, friends, as a looking at Paul's example, how is your zeal for the Lord? How great is your desire to be his witness in this world? It looks so different from anything else in this world. It looks so different. Are you, pre- are you preparing the way and raising the banner? Let's go on, verse 25, because I'm running out of time. At present, however... I am going to Jerusalem to bring aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessing, they ought to also be of service to them in material blessing. When when therefore I have completed this and have delivered it to them, what I have collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of blessing of Christ. He wants to see him, but he says, hey, I'm going to Jerusalem because there's some poor saints there that really need help financially. They need need food. They need a place to live. And so he gets, gets, uh, what happens when he goes to Jerusalem? He gets arrested. Um, But he's going there to minister to the saints. And part of the ministry he is going to do is is a benevolent need to, to the poor in the Jerusalem congregation. And mind you, that Jerusalem congregation is mostly if not all Jewish believers and they're getting an offering from Gentile churches <laughs> just, I mean this is just the ministry of reconciliation is big here this is what we call reconciliation I mean these two groups before Christ they couldn't agree on anything but here's what the gospel does and there's something he's saying that um, he's saying that he's not saying by the way I'm coming to you and you need to take an offering for me as I go. <laughs> I kind of hint, hint, get that in, in there. And then, in other words, you need to prepare, be prepared to give. I want to draw attention, take a moment right now to draw attention to the needs of the abundant life. There are a couple of pressing needs, benevolent needs, we have in our church family right now. Um, the church benevolent ministry has been exhausted. So take out your phone on the app right now and give. Um, that's what I want you to do. Or if not, put some money in an envelope, write benevolence on it because we need the money this week. In fact, Tuesday, okay? I need $500 for one need and $220 for another. So you can give, and I appreciate that. I will give as well. I'm not going to say give and not give, right? I hope and trust you're still giving to kingdom builders just because we paid off our building, our old building that needs a lot of help and a lot of other work, new siding and windows and carpet in the kids' church room and the foyer and heat in the, in the women's bathroom and uh, maybe a few thousand other things. <laughs> Amen. Thank you, Pastor, for reminding me to give. I love to give. If you don't tithe, I got to tell you, you're missing out on God's blessing. Well, Pastor, dear, it's not in the New Testament. Um, well, Jesus never said not to. 
Come on. Give, save, and live on the rest. I mean, if you, if you, you know, that's the way to get out of debt. We're bound together because of the love of Christ. God's love changes us, and it should. And this is what he's really talking about, that he wants to see them so much. Verse 30, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. He says, this accomplished apostle, minister of God, truster in Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit, dynamic preacher, pray for me. One who I would think would have the ear of God, pray for me. Pray for those who would do me harm in Judea. There are some people that, you know, shortly right then and thereafter, they were hunting Christians. It was growing. Nero put their bodies on poles and lit them on fire at night for his amusement. So did God answer their prayer? Yeah, but not in the way they may have thought. I mean, he was in Judea, but he was delivered by those in Judea to go to Rome. And what did he do there? He preached the gospel and wrote letters. Maybe not the way he, was, he may have envisioned it, but in answer to prayer nonetheless. So God sends them. The Gentile churches don't have to pay. The, the, the government pays. Caesar flips the bill. And so, yeah, God answers. And he still goes anyway, and he goes by the will of God, and we have the prison epistles. So imagine what a missionary that that is. Imagine we have a missionary that is supported by the government, called to go, we do, right here in our church. <laughs> She's not here, but Casey and Nick, right? Chaplains. In a tough ground where there's a lot of political restraint on speech. Does that mean we don't go? Oh, they restricted our speech. We can't go there. No, we find creative ways to preach gospel. There's some countries, they can't say certain things, but they find creative ways. You're restricted in your workplace but you can find creative ways to let the hope of Christ shine. Come on, we're not dead. So let me ask you, if Paul the Apostle, a man called by God, well-versed in knowing Jesus, of great faith, with miracles following, starting churches everywhere he goes, if a man like that asks for prayer, maybe we should ask for prayer. Well, pastor, every time we have people come up as, I'm too shy to go up for prayer. Why? Are we afraid somebody's going to say hocus pocus, alakazam, and push us over? Come on now, we live in the Pentecostal world. I've seen that abused. No, that's not going to happen here. People are going to trust God with you. Pastor, I just don't want anybody to see me. I don't want, any, I don't want my wife to know I'm really in prayer. I don't want my kids to see me. I just don't. Pride comes before a fall. When we have prayer meetings, we have call to prayer, we have invitations for prayer, we should take advantage of those things. Ask for prayer. Ask for prayer when you're sick in body and sick in your sin. James 5.13, is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. 
I think I have this scripture, don't I? Nope. Let him sing songs of praise. This is really important. Verse 14, he says, Is any of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other that you may pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. So ask for prayer when you're sick in body and sick in your sin. Ask for prayer if you've been overburdened. Galatians 6.2 says, Bear each other's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Ask for prayer if you need help discerning God's will. Colossians 1.9 says, And so from that day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So three things. I don't apparently have them on PowerPoint. So ask for prayer if you are sick in body. There it is. Sick in body or sick with sin. Secondly, ask for prayer if you're overburdened. Friends, if you're going through things and it's too hard for you, ask for prayer. I mean, there are times we feel like it's too much. We don't have, a, we don't have enough with it. You are right. That's why God has given the believer the privilege of prayer. <coughs> The only reason it doesn't work is if we don't pray. What does Paul say? Don't be anxious about anything, Galatians 6. But in everything, with prayer and petition, present your request to God in the peace of God. <laughs> Come on now. If I was preaching, and the peace of God that passes all your understanding. In other words, you don't understand why you have peace. You get to that? Right in the middle of my burden, right in the middle of my terrible, right in the middle of my awful, right in the middle of the worst of the worst of the worst. And I got peace? What's up with that? I mean, how come this isn't happening all the time? Well, maybe because there's not praying going on. Ask for prayer if you need help discerning God's will. How many don't want to know what God's will is? And so from the day we heard, he says that we may understand what the knowledge of the will of God is. You know, this thing of praying for one another is so powerful. Pam, would you come? And it's one of the great purposes of the church. I'm reminded of the old prophet Samuel after he prayed. And the Bible says lightning and rain started to fall. It started to come down. And the people were so ashamed of themselves for the sin they had been living in that they repented and asked Samuel what? Pray for us. They said, hey, pray for us. His reply was so powerful. He says this in 1 Samuel 12, 23. As for me, I will certainly not sin against the Lord by ending my prayers for you. He knew the importance of encouragement in